Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we spoke to an expert on remediation about cleaning up large oil spills, chatted with the publisher about the promises and perils of literature in translation, and with our neighbors in Bridgeport about cleaning up the Chicago River. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for June 2nd, 2017. Nancy Clem of Spontaneous Vegetation spoke with Lila Darwish, author of Earth Repair, about large-scale cleanups and oil spill remediation. Darwish broke down various methods of remediation and pointed out the flaws in many current efforts to contain the contamination. Spontaneous Vegetation airs on the first Wednesday of each month at noon. So hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Spontaneous Vegetation. I'm your host, Nancy Clem. Spontaneous Vegetation is a monthly show of long-format interviews with folks who find the cracks, break up the compaction, remediate the contamination, and leave the soil, metaphorically or literally, better for us all. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Lila Darwish. Lila is a community organizer, author, and permaculture designer with a deep commitment to environmental and social justice and providing success, accessible and transformative tools for communities dealing with toxic contamination of their land and drinking water. Over the last decade, she has worked for different environmental organizations and community groups in Canada and the USA on campaigns such as tar sands, fracking, nuclear energy, coal, climate justice, and more. She has also had the opportunity to support frontline communities dealing with environmental disasters such as oil spills and fracking contamination. She is the author of the book, Earth Repair, A Grassroots Guide to Healing Toxic and Damaged Landscapes, and is currently finishing a master's degree in disaster resilience leadership at Tulane University in New Orleans. Whew. I also should add that I actually have met and worked with Lila. <laughs> so we have a personal connection as, um, as well. But anyway, hello, Lila. How's the weather? Hey, how's, it going? <laughs> how's the weather in Alberta this morning? It's all right. It's all right. It's uh, a lot colder than New Orleans. So <laughs> yeah. it snowed the other day and it made me cry, but I'm all right. I'm getting adjusted. <laughs> wow. It snowed in uh, late May? Yeah. Yeah. When does it stop doing that? We don't know. <laughs> it's got to have a Canadian thing where you're like, May, June, maybe not, maybe yes. You just got to be prepared, you know? <laughs> wow. Well, okay. Well, we're going to get right into it. Um, your book, Earth Repair, uh, brought remediation and bioremediation to the public consciousness, even if it is a small public that's noticing. It's it's still you lifted up these ideas um, so f- folks could see them. Um, what exactly is bioremediation? That's a, a big question. That's great. <laughs> um, <laughs> what is bioremediation? I guess for me... Bioremediation is working with different natural allies, plants, um, mushrooms, bacteria, and working with them to help either pull out toxins or break toxins down in the land or in the water. Um, And I was really interested in particular um, and trying to do that work in a way that was most accessible to communities. Because there is a form of bioremediation that happens that you see maybe in industry um, in terms of oil spills and such, but it's a very particular type. And it's kind of in that mindset of kind of industrial capitalism where it's like, you know, we're just marketing things. We're making packaged 
kind of products and throwing them on um, a contaminated site or trying to remove stuff. And it wasn't really things that were financially accessible to people who are the most impacted by the contamination. So I kind of wanted, I thought looking at things like working with plants, bacteria and mushrooms, there are ways to do that work where regular folks can actually do it. And it's not easy, but it is something that is accessible, especially if you learn how to actually work with those beings in the ways that work with them the best. Right. So how does um, conventional in- industry clean up an oil spill? Oh, wow. <laughs> so so many ways. Um, it depends on if it's water or earth-based, right? Like Talk is about it happening? Both? Yeah. Both? yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I've been down in the Gulf of Mexico for the last year, which is a very fascinating place to, to learn about oil spill cleanup um, or also what not to do um, when it comes to an oil spill. But I would say like often what we see with oil spills is basically companies and governments come in. They kind of lock it down really fast. The communities aren't getting a lot of information um, because there is this weird thing in, in kind of emergency management and disaster mentality where they're so afraid that people will panic that they tell you nothing and they don't right. realize that that actually induces panic. It's really awkward. Um, but um, when it comes to an oil spill, let's say if it's on, I mean, initially they want to contain it. You always want to contain the spill. Mm-hmm. Then you want to try to pick it up, kind of absorb it, whatever you can, Um and then when that doesn't work, they do this awesome thing where they do jazz hands and they say nature's going to heal it. But they don't do anything <laughs> to really help nature heal it, right? It's exceptional. But I, for example, if you're dealing with big water stuff, um, if it's a river or, or ocean, they basically try to get booms up, which are these uh, – mm. I don't know how to describe that on air because um, I'm making hand motions and y'all can't see that. But it's basically things to contain the, the oil. Oil floats on the water and they want to kind of stop it where they can. Um, and once it's contained, they bring in things like um, skimmers and, and kind of ho- like things to suck it up or to sop it up, like sorbents. Um, and then when that's done and they've gotten as much as they can, which is often not a lot, to be honest, um, and not because people are lazy, but often because um, it just water moves quickly, things get weathered. It's just a situation right. where it's actually really difficult to clean up oil. And if you're in a really, an, an, like a more open water situation or fast moving water, it moves too quick. It actually gets under the boom and just keeps going. It's really hard to contain. Mm-hmm. So it's funny when you hear people talking about oil spill cleanup, they say, oh yeah, it's super easy. We just contain it and we sop it up. But then you start talking about things like tar sands oil, which sinks. And if oil sinks, you can't really contain it, right? right? It's not really easy to sop up. And so there's all these ways where they kind of, they lie, but they don't lie, right? It's like an interesting form of equivocation. Um, they also like to do something, especially in, in open ocean or kind of bigger kind of situations. Um, they love to do in situ burning where they basically contain the oil and then light it on fire and burn it off. Uh, um, water which is, again, or, as a company, well, as long as the oil isn't hitting the, the shore and making some birds oiled, they look fine in the public. If it's up in the air, that's not their problem. Right. And then in the Gulf, what we saw and what they want to do in a lot of places, whether it's Arctic or any kind of big water, open water situation is dispersants. And they love the idea of when you have a big slick of oil, bombing it with these chemicals that basically allow it to break up and go into the water column. So instead of it being a problem on top, it kind of goes all throughout. And again, you'll have people in industry say that that's a good thing because it breaks the oil up, makes it easier for the bacteria to break it down. Um, but when you're dealing with something that's very toxic like oil and then you add a dispersant to it, which could also be very toxic, um, you basically put that into the whole environment. And then you also create all these other things. Like in the Gulf of Mexico, they sprayed dispersants right at the wellhead 
on the on the kind of the the ocean floor. And now there's this thing that they call it's called marine. I mean, basically the the layman's term is marine snot, but they like to call it marine snow because it's a rebranding. But basically, <laughs> there was this whole chemical process where they poured so much dispersant on this epic amount of oil that was coming out that it actually created this giant mucus, white mucus on the bottom of the Gulf. And part of that was because of bacteria and all this stuff, but it basically created a layer of mucus with the oil underneath, and that's kind of just hanging out there. And some people think that could be a really bad idea, um, and they don't really know what the impacts are. But the industry is like, oh, wait, it dropped the oil. No one can find the oil. We have a snot plug. Let's try to do that more. Because it's a game of how do you hide it and who can hide it best, right? Because the worst case scenario is it hits the shore, it makes the beaches look bad. And so often, again, in conventional oil spills, we're dealing with how do we hide it versus how do we clean it up. Workers are never given really the proper gear, no matter what we've learned from Exxon Valdez or any of the other spills. There's this consistent thing where people tend to underestimate the health costs and the environmental costs of it, because it's the nature of doing business. If they actually accepted that, they might not be able to do what they do. So it's complicated. That's the long answer. Um, And doing it on land is a totally different thing. But I hope that answered your question a bit. Wow. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) I-94 chatted with Chad Post of Open Letter Books about the power and perils of publishing and translation. Post spoke about the new literature of Spain and about a notorious husband and wife translating team who some say are hurting Russian literature. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. We have a special guest today. We're going to be joined momentarily by Chad Post. He is with Open Letter Books, which is an initiative of the University of Rochester. We're going to be having a good discussion today about books in translation, uh, all kinds of uh, world literature, and uh, all kinds of fun stuff like that. He is joining us uh, via the magic of the Internet and Skype. Chad, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Hey, Chad. Hey, Chad. What's up, man? I think that's an interesting point to bring up. You know, one of the challenges of literature in translation is the quality of the translation itself. And it's interesting reading, uh, you know, I've I've leafed through about four or five titles, and the translations seem to be fairly decent, uh, but I don't honestly know because I don't read Korean. I don't, I I read French. I can read some of that. I can read some Spanish. Uh, But how, I guess one of the questions I would have is, how can people know that they're actually getting kind of the authentic author's voice in a translated book? I think that's a, a challenge for anybody. I know it's a challenge for a translator, too. Some translators would say the only fealty they have is to the original author, not the new audience in the new language. But how do we, how do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile the fact that we are going to necessarily lose some of the color and the nuance from, say, the original Korean translated into English? Right. Um, this, is, this is sort of like the beginning of one of the classes I teach at the <laughs> university. So again, buckle in for 16 weeks of this if you want. Um, no, I'll try and answer uh, as directly as possible. I think, so when we get, there's a couple of levels to this. When we get in a translation, um, there are, they come in at varying qualities at times. There are ones that you know that the person, the, the, one of the key markers for when we're editing them and that our editor, Kaya Stramanis, spends a lot of time going through each one of these books when they arrive, one of the key markers for when you can tell a translation is a translator has a feel for the style of the original is when it gets away from just simply conveying information in a way that is 
almost tone deaf to the American audience, that what we're really trying to capture is the style. What makes that book unique? It's not so much what the story is so much as how it's told and the way in which different literary elements come to play within the text itself. And when you're reading a bad translation, you can usually pick up on it quicker than you think you can. And the more that you work with it, like if you've done it for you know a number of years, you can immediately go into a translation and be like, oh, this person's focusing on just, just translating over the meaning of these sentences and ignoring all the things that make this an interesting book. And so the editorial process becomes more focused on how do you recapture that? What questions are you asking the translator to get them to readjust their writing expectations to be able to convey something that makes this book unique and meaningful. Um, and so what you're getting as a, as at the end as a reader isn't necessarily the word-by-word word similarity to the original. Like that, that would be kind of weird and probably not that interesting, but that you are capturing what made this book function in its original, what made it special in its original. That's the thing that we want to get into English and to be able to present to American readers. So that you read something and you say, Man, this is this is a feat of writing, and that takes a translator who can both understand the language and its original, and understand the nuances of that they have to be a really good reader to know like what to pay attention to, what's important to focus on, what's going to be like manipulated in the process over as it makes its way into English, and then be a really good writer where they know how to do certain tricks that writers know how to do that like someone who's just a, a com like a computer would never figure out like the like the various subtleties and the way in which you convey things and put words in certain sequences, choose certain certain words to add to like various motifs and to pick up on themes. They have to be able to do that. Um, and that that takes a lot of practice. But like I, like I say, by reading a lot of these books and by working with them on, on such an intimate level, it becomes way easier than you think it does. It's sort of like, like if you were uh, into poetry and you read a lot of poetry, you can pick out what's good or bad about a poem really quickly. And we can sort of do that with the translation as well, even if you can't read the original language. Like, um, like, uh, well, I shouldn't use any very specific examples. There, um, <laughs> I won't. Use any, I will use an example that is un, I will not attribute this to anyone, but there's a book that came in not too long ago in which a lot of times that the, the author would move into a more abstracted, sort of general realm of writing, the the translation fell apart. It became essentially just a series of nouns and words that weren't connected to one another, as if the, the translator didn't understand what that author was saying. So like the ability to write in like this abstract way and to get at these larger concepts was beyond that translator's capability in relation to that book. And you could hone in on that and try and rework it and try and figure out what is what is actually going on. And with the back and forth of the translator, which can take weeks and weeks of trying to figure out like what what this should be and how this should be conveyed to try and capture that that style and that's what's really important about it but you can you can notice it pretty quickly if you work with the books a lot well my goal is to kick off a literary feud on the show chat so whenever you're ready you start dropping bombs and get it rolling <laughs> <laughs> well i mean of course there is a feud in the translation community i did mention janet malcolm's article uh about russian translations done by a husband and wife team which have uh roiled people and i'm sure you might have opinions on that the, the translations yep. are, are known for being dry. i'd love to hear what you're about the pacifization of, of russian literature i'd love your take on that so here's a here's the thing that I do for my class every year. Um, I teach a class on world literature and translation, and one of their first assignments, their first assignment, is that they get three um, versions of Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov, and um, they are translated by three different people, including the husband and wife team that you that you reference, and they have all the markers have been removed, so the students don't know 
who translated what. They just know it's the same chapter of the same book. Um, and they have to read the three, analyze which one they would prefer to publish given the choice between the three of them and like why the other ones are flawed. And to date, zero people have ever chosen the Pavir and Volokansky mm -hmm. one because it is wretchedly bad. Like it's <laughs> stilted, Ooh, it's loaded. Cool. It uses, they use a, the, in that book in particular, they have, they use footnotes as a crutch to explain the fact that they can't translate things very well and that they don't get at any nuances or don't get at any, any of the right sort of um, meanings that you could convey within the book itself. Instead, they're just like footnote everything. So I think in the first chapter of that book, there's 49 footnotes, it's like eight pages. Um, and their, their language is very oddly stilted. And I know that like their process is one of uh, where she translates a trot from Russian. He rewrites it because he doesn't know a lot of Russian. Then they go back and forth and sort of get to the main point of it. And I've, I've never found their translations to be very satisfying. I haven't read their huge War and Peace retranslation, which some people really like um, for its like fidelity to endless repetition that exists in the original. But I feel like they have like um, they do have an aesthetic to their translation. And it is this weird sort of like keeping one, keeping the repetition, keeping the words that were there in the original that's to hammer them home without without adjusting to different, like a larger context of the aesthetic, they tend, to, they tend to just focus on like the line by line, word by word basis. And I think sometimes a lot of th things sort of come off dry or stilted in their translations that say like um, Marion Schwartz, who's a very good Russian translator, yeah. she doesn't have that problem. And she's translated some of the same books they have and hers tend to read much more interestingly and get more at like what the art of that book was and not just this like weird, almost mechanicistic um, approach to the translation. There, I dropped a bomb for you. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> I kind of like the footnotes in the in the Pevier and Volokonsky translation. Well, you're a David Foster Wallace so. fan too, so. Well, <laughs> you yeah. like a lot Those of footnotes. Those footnotes were fun. And these are footnotes yeah. that are supposed to explain things. And like, I can, I can, I can't, the book's at my office, but like if I grab that, you can just pick out like any number of them and it'll be like, um, the name of like a river and it's like this river has its name from 1950 or from 1854 in which this thing happened you're like what does that have to do with this story like <laughs> literally nothing well, like you're just giving me you're just wikipediaing this reading experience bad at sports spoke to Aaron Jane Nelson about her upcoming exhibit psychopompopolis Nelson who works in textiles is a science fiction buff with a thing for cephalopods Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Today we are joined by Erin Jane Nelson. Welcome to Bad at Sports Center. Hey. So uh, you're in town, right? You're currently an Atlanta artist via the Bay Area. We'll talk about that. But you're in town right now for a show at Document, right? Yep. The show opens Saturday. This Saturday. Uh, it's Psycho... Psychopompopolis. Psychopompopolis. No. Psychopompopolis. Psychopompopolis. That's actually I was a lot easier to say. Close. Than yeah. Than Brian. Hey, could somebody remind me where Document is? Where's that? Uh, where's that Document Gallery located? Somebody. It's on uh, Chicago Avenue, seventeen oh nine Chicago, near all those other galleries that we know and love. I think Mike and Andrews has building. an opening at Volume it's at Gallery. It's 1709 West Chicago with Volume Gallery, uh, Paris, London, Hong Kong, and Western Exhibitions. Thank you, Disembodied Voice. Who so was that person? What is Psychopompopolis? Um, you'll get it by the end. Psychopompopolis. I, so I, I thought I had it. That's, that's like foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah. It's a, like it's a made-up word and place. 
that is the basis of a piece of short sci-fi that I wrote that the whole show is based off of. And a psychopomp is um, sort of like a cultural symbol that goes between many, many different cultures where it's like the the person that carries you to the next realm. It's the Grim Ooh. Reaper or... Oh. Um, Duncan is writing a note. That's how interesting this concept is. <laughs> you couldn't come to a better place for sci-fi bros. Nice. Than Padded Sports Center. But yeah, psychopomps are across like many different cultures throughout the world. Um, so you're Virgil, you're... Exactly, yeah, okay. exactly. So in the story, it describes a kind of previously undiscovered species of advanced cephalopods that are called psychopomps. Nice. Yeah. So that's, and they live in the ocean in a place colloquially called psychopompopolis. Where they live. Where they live. Opolis. So is there, we do a lot of, you know, Greek terminology here. Do they have, (laughs) do do these cephalopods have culture there in the city? Is it like an urban hip environment or Um, like, is it a crazy underwater alien space that we cannot comprehend with our human brains. Well, it's not, I don't try to anthropomorphize them in the story. They really are kind of of their own, I don't know, sensibilities. So it's not like they drive octopus cars and things like that. But um, I'll give you- You can't know their culture, Brian. Exactly. (laughs) But I want to know Essentially, like they, in the story, I'll give you a brief synopsis of the story. How about that? Um, in the story, it's the the near future, so it's speculative. It, it's the year 2020, and finally, human beings um, realize like how horrible global warming is and how kind of imminent all of the threats of climate change are. And so you see kind of this hyper version of the nationalism and border walls and um, human migrations that are happening right now um, in, in kind of mass effect across not just um, developing nations, but also in first world nations. So you essentially, it's told from my point of view and um, the powers that be right now, I think it's really easy to identify the powers that be as like an evil (laughs) nationalistic force, create border walls and kind of start to eject all of their populations. So there begins these mass kind of human migrations. Um, So in the story, there's many migrations over water. And um, I'm really interested in the ocean as kind of a symbol for climate change. And I think a lot of people who think about environment, um, often we hear about just what happens to land, what happens to water, but really where it's all taking place is in the ocean. So, right. And currently, like, squids and other cephalopods are actually doing quite well in global warming. Their populations yeah, are booming. exactly. And so a lot of the story is based on, I mean, I've been researching kind of what's been happening with ocean acidification and and what animals are adapting and what aren't. And certainly cephalopods are totally adaptive and are going to be fine, Um, hopefully, for a while. The Nautilus has been here for a while and it's going to stick around. Don't ever underestimate a cuttlefish. Well, and even certain corals are becoming hyper-resistant to... Really? Yeah, in Biscayne Bay. I mean, except for all those bleached. Yeah, the bleached ones. But in Biscayne Bay, there have been like these corals that are becoming hyper resilient because the uh, recently Biscayne Bay was dredged, and so there are these uh, artists slash scientists who I've mentioned on the show before, coral morphologic, and they, yeah, yeah, and they discovered that there are um, these corals that are living in the bay, which is warm, er than it should be that are like that are living yeah that are happy and that are resilient and so they have been kind of putting a lot of energy into trying to figure out like what it is that makes animals either adaptive or resilient to global warming 
Interesting. So, so your story is up on the website, right? I think I saw. Is that the whole thing, or is that just an? That excerpt? is the whole thing. So okay. it's it's not. I mean, I think it's about under just under four thousand words. So it's not. You and, know. and what's the website actually? Just if, if people wanted to look it up, it's psychopompopolis.net. Oh, it's got its own site. It's not even a oh, document. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, okay. So then. Oh, yeah. Mass migrations over water. People are traveling. How do they actually interact with the right. cephalopods? The right. psychopomps. The psychopomps. Yeah. So essentially, the beginning of the story just sets up this sort of apocalyptic mass migration. And the main character in the story is um, trying to cross the ocean, and their boat gets toppled, essentially. Um, much in the same way that you see now with migrations by water, where there's actual coastal patrolmen trying to pop rafts and turn over boats. Um, so that people don't come to shore. So that happens in the book, and essentially, I won't give things away, but um, I, she, wakes up <laughs> in inside a psychopomp. What? Um, with your dog. With my dog. Uh-huh. Yeah. And and then it's it's kind of, the story proceeds by just describing this new body and embodiment in this new place. So it's, it's trying to take sci-fi just as a framework for talking about this sort of projection or idea that I'm really interested in um, through narrative rather than through theory or some mm-hmm. other kind of you know ready-made art form. Well, and tell us that how these psychopomps are manifested uh, in the show. In the show, yeah, visually. So the works, yeah, the works are all based on psychopomps. I mean, they're not directly illustrative, but they... Um, typically, my work is uh, photographic textiles that are then collaged and quilted and warped and stretched in different ways. And for this show, I've been using um, a translucent silk. Ooh. So there's um, these many layered kind of uh, wall tapestries that, in a way, kind of describe being in a psychopomp or life as a psychopomp. Um, and there's also going to be, <laughs> I just um, like want to crawl into one of your tapestries now. Do it. Yeah. I mean, there's also going to be like a giant 20 foot mural wow. tapestry. And, um, my husband actually remixed an audio version of the, of the short story. So I worked with a voice actress. Um, and, and yeah, so you can come listen to the story and, and see some of the works inspired by it. So you can, li- you can actually listen to it in mm-hmm. the gallery space. Yeah. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah. It's like the first audio intervention in the new document space. Yeah, Aaron will have memorized the story by the <laughs> end of the show. <laughs> Did the voice it's actress... Like it seemed like a good idea. Does her voice sound like your voice sounds in your own head? Um, I mean, her voice sounds like a white American non-accent-inflected woman, so yeah. A newscaster? Not, she's not that professional. I mean, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) She is not that great. I probably could have done it myself. I mean, I'm available. Full disclosure, I get most of the people that I work with from Fiverr.com, which is essentially the, no offense to Fiverr.com, but the bottom of the barrel when it comes to to freelancers. (laughs) Um, It's people who are just willing to do things for $5. Yeah. So you have a $5 voiceover. Well, now people have really gotten wise on Fiverr and have incrementalized what they oh, do. They're like five dollars so a like word. Like five dollars for a hundred words. Five dollars. Anyway, the math was still in my favor. Mm-hmm. But yeah.
This week on the Trump Diaries. The Russians went to Jared. The Boer-in-Chief feuds with Germany and leaves Paris. And Ivanka offers up popsicles on Memorial Day. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 126, May 25th. The Congressional Budget Office said the House bill to repeal Obamacare this month would leave 14 million people without insurance next year alone and at least 23 million people by 2026. The CBO also said the new law could make insurance economically out of reach for some sick consumers and would also not reduce the deficit as much as initially promised. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell expressed pessimism in the wake of that report. And Trump is prepping for a years-long war under the cloud of a special investigation. The White House is, quote, getting street fighters ready to go with legal surrogate communication and rapid response teams as part of what he calls a new normal. Trump is also said to be setting up a war room to deal with the legal investigations embroiling his administration. And Trump declined to explicitly endorse NATO's mutual defense pledge in Brussels yesterday, lashing out instead at the membership over what he called chronic underpayments. That scene was awkward with a stony handshake between Trump and French President Emmanuel Macron. Trump also appeared to push aside the Prime Minister of Montenegro as they gathered for a photograph. Trump ordered an investigation into leaks of sensitive information after a complaint from Britain's Prime Minister, Theresa May, over disclosures from the investigation into Britain's deadliest terrorist attack since 2005. Trump said in a statement the alleged leaks coming out of government agencies are deeply troubling. The New York Times published a breakdown and pictures of the bomb used in the attack before UK newspapers had access to it. And Politico reported that advisor Paul Manafort remained in contact and continued to advise the Trump team even after the FBI launched its Russian probe into him. Manafort called Rins Priebus a week before the inauguration to tell him the dossier by a former British spy that alleged Russia had compromising information on Trump and his associates was, quote, garbage. Manafort was forced to resign as Trump's campaign chairman due to his ties to the Ukraine and accusations that he'd accepted laundered money. And a federal appeals court refused to reinstate Trump's revived Muslim ban, saying it, quote, drips with religious intolerance, animus, and discrimination. The decision from the United States Courts of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit in Richmond, Virginia, may not be the last word, but it does put a serious impediment in Trump's way. Day 127, May 26th. Investigators are now focusing on a series of meetings held by Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law and an influential White House advisor, as part of their probe into Russian meddling in the 2016 election and related matters. Kushner held meetings in December with the Russian ambassador and a banker from Moscow and did not disclose those meetings on any of his forms. He is being investigated now because of the extent and nature of those interactions. And two men were killed in a stabbing on a Portland train when they tried to intervene as another man yelled racial slurs at two young women who appeared to be Muslim, including one wearing a hijab, police said. Police on Saturday identified the two slain victims as the 53-year-old military veteran Ricky John Best and the 23-year-old Talison Nietzsche. Police arrested 35-year-old Jeremy Joseph Christian of North Portland. Local media reports described Christian as a known white supremacist in the area, and his Facebook page showed a long history of posting racist and extremist beliefs. And fired FBI Director James Comey acted on Russian information he knew was fake. The Russian intelligence claimed that then-Attorney General Loretta Lynch had been compromised and suggested that she would make the FBI investigation of Clinton go away. This was false, but Comey feared that if the Russians released the information publicly, there would be no way for law enforcement and intelligence officials to discredit it without burning their sources and their methods. And Greg Gianforte won the Montana U.S. House special election the day after he was cited for misdemeanor assault against a reporter. The election shows the difficulty Democrats have in red states. Gianforte also reportedly has financial ties to a number of Russian companies that have been sanctioned by the United States, and the reporter he assaulted, a man from The Guardian, had reported on those ties. 
And John Boehner, former House Speaker, said that everything else Trump done has been a complete disaster, other than getting the House to pass the health care bill. Boehner added that Trump is, quote, still learning how to be president. Day 128, May 27th. Eight men are now in custody in connection with the Manchester bombing, and British officials express confidence that they have rounded up the bulk of the Manchester bomber's associates. ISIS claimed responsibility for that bombing. The bomber was also linked to a major local Manchester criminal gang. Hundreds of troops were deployed on England's streets and were patrolling British trains for the first time ever. And the Washington Post reports that Jared Kushner wanted a secret communications channel with the Kremlin so Michael Flynn could discuss strategy in Syria and other security issues directly with senior military officials in Moscow. Kushner suggested using Russian diplomatic facilities in the United States for those communications. Trump responded to those reports with a tweet that said, quote, whenever you see the words sources say in the fake news media and they don't mention names, it is very possible that those sources don't exist but are made up by fake news writers. Hashtag fake news is the enemy. Two New York Times reporters fired back at that tweet, noting that the information in their stories came from the White House itself. Day 129, May 28th. In a bizarre scene, Trump chose to ride in a golf cart while his foreign counterparts took a walk through Taramina, Sicily during the Group of Seven summit. Six other world leaders walked 700 yards to take a group photo at a piazza in a hilltop town. Trump decided to wait until he could get a golf cart. Trump, of course, does not believe in exercise, believing the human body is like a battery with finite resources. And Ivanka Trump offered up a message for Memorial Day on her Twitter account that said, quote, Make champagne popsicles this Memorial Day, linking this to a section on IvankaTrump.com, which also featured a list of ideas for the holiday, described as the, quote, kickoff to summer. The tweet was widely derided as insensitive given that Memorial Day honors fallen military veterans. Day 130, May 29th. The Wall Street Journal reports that Trump is considering big changes to the White House. Trump may bring back former campaign officials, Corey Lewandowski and David Urban, to handle communications and political duties related to the Russian investigation. Trump may also have lawyers vet his tweets. In related news, Mike Dubke resigned as White House communications director in what could be the beginning of a major staff overhaul. Dubke had only been on the job for three months. Day 131, May 30th. CNN reports that Russian officials discussed having potentially derogatory information about Trump and some of his top aides in conversations intercepted by intelligence during the 2016 election. One source described the information to CNN as financial in nature. The Russians believed, quote, they had the ability to influence the administration through this derogatory information. And the White House has drafted a rule to roll back a federal requirement that mandates employers provide birth control coverage in health insurance plans. That mandate generated scores of lawsuits by employers that had religious objections to it, and a court challenge by women's rights groups against the Trump administration action is now inevitable. And a few days later, Trump condemned two racially charged Portland, Oregon train stabbings, tweeting that they were, quote, unacceptable. The violent attacks in Portland on Friday are unacceptable. The victims were standing up to hate and intolerance. Our prayers are with them. Read the tweet from the official POTUS account. Trump did not tweet from his more popular Real Donald Trump account about the killings. Trump, however, did write on the Real Donald Trump account on Tuesday that, quote, the U.S. relationship with Germany is very bad for U.S. and will change. While in Brussels, Trump reportedly told European Union leaders that the Germans are bad, very bad. A comment that stunned them and forced one of his key advisors, Gary Cohn, to explain the president was unhappy only with the U.S.-Germany trade relationship, not with the longtime American ally itself. And German leader Angela Merkel said in Munich that the traditional alliances were no longer as steadfast in the wake of her meetings with Trump. She added that Europe should pay more attention to its own interests and, quote, really take our fate into our own hands. 
The times in which we could rely fully on others, they are somewhat over, she said on the campaign trail after the contentious NATO summit meeting in Brussels. This is what I experienced in the last few days, in what was seen as an explicit shot at Donald Trump. Day 132, May 31st. Trump is expected to withdraw the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement, making good on a campaign pledge. The move would seriously damage the landmark 2015 climate change accord that committed nearly every nation to take action to curb the warming of the planet. The withdrawal might be accompanied by legal caveats that will shape the impact of Trump's decision. However, Trump is also meeting with Rex Tillerson today, who is a staunch supporter of the accord. And a truck bomb in Kabul near the Afghan presidential palace killed at least 80 people and wounded 300. A blast during the morning rush hour caused panic in most of central Kabul, shattering windows as far as a mile away. Explosives had been placed in a tanker truck used to empty septic wells, digging a crater some 13 feet deep. The attack is one of the deadliest in the long Afghan war and comes as Trump is debating a plan to send 5,000 more troops in. The Afghan conflict is America's longest ever war. And AP is reporting that disgraced former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn will now comply with a subpoena from the Senate Intelligence Committee. Flynn had initially taken the fifth, but his lawyers alerted the committee on Tuesday he will respond to the two subpoenas sent to his business. He will also provide personal documents sought after Senate investigators narrowed the scope of their request. And in a related story, Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, declined to testify before Congress. Cohen told CNN, quote, I declined the invitation to participate as the request was poorly phrased, overly broad, and not capable of being answered, adding he considered it a, quote, total fishing expedition. They have yet to produce one single piece of credible evidence that would corroborate the Russian narrative, Cohen said. He called the investigation a rush to judgment, but he said if he was served with a subpoena, he would comply. And the New York Times is reporting that Trump is increasingly isolated inside the White House. One of his main stumbling blocks is that he cannot shake up his staff because he cannot recruit new aides. The Russian investigations, plus Trump's own habit of sandbagging his staff, have driven away most candidates for the jobs. And 43% of voters want Congress to begin impeachment proceedings against Trump, according to a new Politico morning consult poll. Trump's approval rating is at 39%, according to the 538 Meta poll. These are the Trump Diaries. Radio Free Bridgeport spoke to Owen Lloyd and James Burns of the South Branch PAC and the Eleanor Boathouse about the state of the Chicago River, the opportunities for recreation, and how the riverfront has helped shape our city. Radio Free airs every Tuesday, drive time, from 4 to 6 p.m. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with Owen Lloyd and James Burns of the South Branch Pack. They oversee the Eleanor Boathouse, which is having an open house here in our neighborhood on June 3rd. We're talking about water quality. We're talking about river usage. And we're talking about how people get involved in the Chicago River and the riverfront itself. So it sounds like a chicken and the egg kind of thing. I think you were talking about this last time, Owen. People actually have to use the river before people then can test the river to make sure that it's safe to use. Doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. It's something like that. Like once they see increased usage, then there's more motivation there to make sure the water quality levels are improved. So it is, they're not just going to clean it up so then you can go into it. They need to see people are rowing and actively using it. Then that's going to motivate the EPA more and, you know, the bureaucracy more to make sure it's cleaner. Is that part of a cost issue or, or what's, the, what's the scoop on that? Because you would think that having a clean river here in a major metropolitan area is a good thing for everybody. Uh, you know, I, I think, of course, cost is, is a big part of it, um, and, and that's in the literal and the figurative sense of cost, right? Um, there are now homes along Bubbly Creek that didn't used to be the case not too long ago. Uh, the stockyards are, in fact, closed, and the river is no longer the industrial artery that it used to be. Um, so part of it is cost, but also uh, this is like turning a battleship, right? This is something that uh, is going to take quite some time because forever the river was seen only as an industrial artery. Uh, so there needs to be a lot of minds changed, first of all, 
ball. I mean, when we started out talking to people in Bridgeport and Pilsen, they looked at me like I was nuts for saying, hey, let's go and hang out on the river. People think that's a totally uh, outrageous idea. Uh, so there are a lot of minds that need to be changed. There's a lot of people that need to buy in. Um, so cost is certainly one, uh, but it's, it's broader than that, I would say. It's kind of a little bit of a the squeaky wheel gets the oil. If nobody's in it and nobody's paying attention to the waterway, there's not really much motivation to improve it. But now people are using it more. And even, you know, downtown with kayak rentals and Ping Tom Park with Mm -hmm. kayak rentals, people are in this waterway now. So it's the spotlight sort of turned on it. Like people are using it. They want to increase recreational opportunities. So part of that is actually cleaning it up more. And, of course, it's an underused part of the city. I mean, the entire riverfront, uh, the riverfront itself is enormous. It's, it's bigger than the lakefront, if I, if I remember yeah, my math yes. correctly. Yeah, over 150 miles of riverfront land. Yeah. And there have been a number of other high-profile building projects. Up at the old Finkel Steel Mill, there's obviously building a, a large, I think it's 30 or 40-acre development that's going in here. I know that there's proposed development down here in Bridgeport as well. So is this kind of also uh, a way to... I guess, bring people and developers into this area to uh, make people understand that this is a resource that's underutilized in our city yeah. and, and an attraction to the city? Yeah, yeah, very much so. And there's actually a Chicago Riverfront Action Plan that the Active Transportation Alliance has put together, which is envisioning uh, – access to the riverfront for the entire length of it everywhere. And every time there's a new development, there needs to be public access to the riverfront uh, from the river to 30 feet back needs to be public access with any new development along the river. And that's just happening bit by bit. So Finkel will have that. Uh, The long um, vacant property south of Roosevelt is going to be redeveloped. That's right up to the river as well. And these are all going to be portions that are then going to end up being part of this riverfront action plan. And of course, we have some uh, evidence because the Ping Tom Park, you mentioned kayak rentals over there. That seems to be very successful. Can you guys speak to that a little bit and how that influences what's going on at the Eleanor Boathouse? You know, I think that Ping Tom has really done a wonderful yeah, on the whole, the the way that that park is viewed is transformative to that neck of the city. And now with this stretch of uh, land that Owen was just referring to south of Roosevelt, we're talking about potentially in the not too distant future, you can walk from Michigan and uh, the river, right, downtown, all the way to Ping Tom Park. And I think if you extend that out another five years, you'll be able to continue that walk all the way down to South Eleanor Street, uh, where the Eleanor Boathouse currently stands. Uh, And Ping Tom, with the new field house, with the beautiful landscaping, with the beautiful location. I mean, it's iconic. People look north of that bridge up the river, and you see the 18th that's raised and the the buildings. Um, People access that boathouse. They access that park. They access the swimming pool there. And and it is, in fact, a community anchor. So um, that is a great point, I think, because people will consider, I believe, Eleanor Boathouse to be an anchor as well. And all of a sudden, people are going to be coming out. The amount of kids that we had last April for the Easter egg hunt uh, was amazing. And these are people that are new to Bridgeport. They chose to live in Bridgeport. Of all the places in the city, they came from Roscoe Village and Logan Square, these other parts that you would never imagine would eventually move to Bridgeport. But they're here. They're raising their family, and they see this wonderful resource, and they're excited about it. Something like kayak rentals is something that everybody's excited to see. 
everybody wants to be able to get onto the river that we talk to that, that come into the meetings on a monthly basis. Um, fishing is another thing. I mean, we saw there's a, a picture on our Facebook page of a guy who caught a carp uh, that was, I think he said 16 pounds. Now, he didn't have a scale out there, uh, and but, I, you know, I have to believe him. The fish was this big. But <laughs> <laughs> trust him, it was big. <laughs> uh, so, you know. Uh, the yoga and the fitness class is currently available at the boathouse. There are also opportunities to learn how to row, and that's offered um, to the community through these rowing organizations. And it's every Tuesday and Thursday night, 5.30 and 6.30, by Recovery on Water. Uh, you walk in, experience is not required, and you can get on an erg machine, overlook the river looking west. The sun will go down through these enormous windows. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene, uh, and you can learn how to row and get in great shape while you're at it. Uh, and, and these are things that are happening out of the gate, right? There's there's a lot more that's in the pipeline. That's very, that's very interesting because uh – it strikes me that, again, with knowing how polluted the river's been, that you say the number one thing people want is kayaks in the river. It shows that minds are already changing to that because that actually is something that my wife and I would like to do. We'd like to get a kayak and go down and, and see the city. People don't, I think, understand that you can see quite a bit of the city from the river. I don't think a lot of people have had that experience. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because there are kayaks, as you mentioned, coming down uh, from downtown, coming from Ping Tong Park. What, what can people see on the river? Well, I think actually, uh, Owen, you might have a really interesting uh, perspective on this as a bicycle guy. Um, yeah. Maybe you can speak to it from that angle. Uh, well, I think about on the river, there's a perspective that you see the city from, which is completely unique. I know this just from doing like the architecture tour downtown is an example that first pops to my head. Um, you're just seeing the, the city from an angle which you don't get when you're in a car, you don't get when you're walking around the sidewalks, you're sort of looking up at the buildings, you're looking up at the structures and going underneath the bridges, and it, it really just sort of, it's kind of like, was it uh, the low angle shot? Like in a lot of films, you get that low angle shot that just makes somebody seem so important, or you see how important they really are. It's the same sort of thing. You're seeing the city from a low angle. Yeah, and uh, I was lucky enough to have a tour of the river uh, by an experienced uh, fisherman out of Henry's Sport and Bait, and uh, he gave me the angle. We threw the boat in down at Richard J. Daly Park, which is western in the river, and we went north all the way up uh, to Peterson Avenue on the far north side. Um, and there was two things that really uh, surprised me. Number one is the low angles, right? How many times have you driven over Ashland, or over Halstead, over the river, and you don't think about it too much? But when you're seeing it from that angle and you see Lawrence's over near Canal uh, it's and the, the graffiti and the, the railroad tracks, um, so the low angle and this new angle, new perspective uh, was so unique um, and kind of inspiring uh, for the work that we're doing. And the second thing is there is so much history that exists along that river. Canal Origins, which is a part of the Park Advisory Council, is where the first shovel full of dirt was dug for the I&M Canal. And the I&M Canal is what made Chicago what it is today. It's why Bridgeport is named Bridgeport. It's why the Irish settled here first, because they were the ones that were digging the canal. Uh, so just right then and there, you know, people, uh, when they discover the history with the river, if you're interested in that sort of thing, I think you're hooked because the river, not only is it a recreational frontier that we're not quite tapping into all the way, uh, it is also a source of history uh, that most people don't realize. Yeah, it's the reason that Chicago is what it is. It's because of the river, because of commerce on that river is what started it. <laughs> yeah. The Klonsky brothers spoke to Pastor Tom Galky and Rabbi Brant Rosen about the difficulties the state of Illinois faces under Governor Bruce Rauner and Donald Trump. 
The two spoke about morality and politics and how direct actions can affect change. Seema Cunningham from Home also played us out this week with one of her original songs. We've also got uh, Pastor Tom Gilkey uh, here and Re- uh, Rabbi uh, Brent Rosen uh, here. To, we're going to be talking, well, we won't, we'll be talking a little <laughs> bit of religion, but we're going to be talking about social justice, about uh, what's been going on in the state. These guys have... Uh, have been spending a little too much time behind bars lately, I think, you know. But you were, you were just down in uh, Springfield, both of you, right? Tom was, yeah. Oh, Tom was. Yeah. And w- so what was going on down there, Tom? We heard, I heard from an education perspective, I heard of 440 of the state school superintendents were marching on, uh, on Springfield demanding that a school budget uh, okay. Be passed. What yeah, else? Yeah, what, right. what did you see? Well, so uh, bear witness for us. Uh, is that the right way to put it? So, so Brandon and I are part of uh, uh, a coalition called Fair Economy Illinois, which is a bunch of great orgs uh, put together. And uh, uh, just uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, we uh, sent a, a group of marchers all the way from the Thompson Center here in Chicago. Uh, and they marched for two weeks down to Springfield. Is that two hundred miles? That's about two hundred miles. Did they and, really? Did uh, they really do it, or did they get in a van and uh, drive? No, no, they really did. No, they, they really did a Rosie Ruiz. They started. I, uh, <laughs> I, I joined for the first day and the eleventh day, and I can testify that these people made it with their blisters, their sores, wow. uh, and the last day, the last half mile. Uh, uh, hundreds of, of people joined, if not more, uh, joined them uh, at the old state capitol where they then uh, uh, processed the last half a mile uh, to the actual uh, new capital, I guess. And uh, um, there um, uh, a bunch of people uh, uh, took the, the governor's office, um, sat outside his door and demanded a uh, people and planet first budget, um, calling out both Governor Rotter and uh, Mike Madigan. Uh, wow. Uh- and, and uh, as we saw, I mean, there was uh, nothing got uh, nothing got done. You know, uh, what, 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 so what I saw, I saw about 30 something people sat in and got arrested doing yeah. civil disobedience yeah, and dragged out. Yeah. And dragged yeah, pretty, out pretty roughly. Yeah. Some of yeah. them uh, look like United uh, Airlines style. Yeah. The uh, yeah. the security there was uh, 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 more violent than I've seen uh, recently at uh, various direct actions. Um, uh, people. Uh, have several bruises, um, folks getting dragged out. Um, food was trying to be passed to the folks outside the governor's office, and the uh, police smacked it down on the floor and kicked it away. Um, oh, I so, saw that, yeah. Yeah, so, so uh, um, definitely a hostile response, uh, uh, which may expose something about uh, uh, who's being protected and, uh, and uh, uh, whose voices are trying to be silenced. No, I said, I said at the beginning, before y'all, uh, my opening remarks about the, the, the budget and the f- school funding, that it didn't seem to me, at least, that, that really anything significant is going to change until the governor's gone and the and the, uh, at least in some ways, the character of the two chambers changes. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's easy to put it on the governor. I think a lot of people do. I think the, I think the issue is so much more fundamental than that. Uh, the, there is so much blame to go around when it comes to Illinois State House and Illinois politics. And I think just focusing on Ronner, and it's easy to focus on just Ronner, just the way, you know, we, it's easy to focus on Trump. And it's very satisfying to do that, but it's a lot more difficult to really and, and scary to focus on the fundamental issue, which is that we have a, uh, a we have serious not only dysfunction, but we have 
we have a takeover. I mean, we have ta literal takeover of the government by the corporate masses. I mean, I, I guess I'm on Lumpen Radio. I can say things like that, right? As long as you don't use a, a profanity or, or take take the Lord's name in vain, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the, the real problem is overwhelming, and I think just focusing on individuals is and too And the easy. Democrats seem to think that they can uh, they can uh, retake power by simply saying uh, Ron or Ron or Ron or Ron or Trump, 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 and that's going to be enough uh, to uh, to do it. Yeah, on the way down, I was listening to WBEZ. I can talk about other radio stations here, can I? We're not competitive. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I'm, a, it's not so much the station. Only but critically. I was listening. To, I was listening. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so much as, uh, about the station. I was listening to Ron. Ron we, was, lo we love Ben Jarofsky, though. On, uh, He's oh, not on yeah. BBC, yeah. yeah, so yeah. it's okay to yeah, say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Ronner was interviewed at length, and I, it was just so, so hard to listen to him. But then they had Cullerton on after that who was just uh, whining. <laughs> you know, we heard from one person who was just out and out lying and another person just sort of whining about not, you know, that we're, we're trying to compromise. We, met, we compromised with this man. We did everything he said and it's still not good enough. And that to me was just a, a statement of, of the state of affairs in the state that we um, – we have we're not focusing on the fact that we there is plenitude in this state. There is a great deal of wealth, and the issue is not that there is enough to go around or how are we going to balance this budget. It's that how are we going to distribute this wealth in an equitable way? Nobody seems to want to talk about that. And I think, uh, and again, you know, uh, tell me what you think because it seems to me over the last couple of years since Ronner's election that. Um, Particularly, uh, in, like I, uh, I was active in the teachers union. I was a local president and all that. And um, uh, it seems as if that the, the, the state uh, labor unions and much of the, the the democratic leadership is allowing Madigan to be their uh, you know uh, their spokesman for this for an, for this anti Ronner anti Ronner coalition. But but uh, but with no independent voice, it's just allowing Madigan to be. To be the the face of the anti Ronner uh, uh, movement, you could say. Does that sound right? I mean, does that does that reflect your views too? Yeah, and I I I think it goes back to what we were joking about morality and politics. But you know, um, if Mike Madigan is going to be the standard bearer for the way out of this you know this political mess, then I think we have a real problem. If these are the these are the ones that we're following into battle. Boy, I'm so depressed after listening to all you guys. If if no uh, if no change uh, if no real change can take place until Ronner's gone, why are we why are we doing that? Why are you guys uh, why are we putting our rear ends on the line down there and people getting arrested? Is it is it is it that hopeless uh, a matter until uh, for the next two years? So I think there. I mean. Um yeah, I don't I, believe it is. I mean, I'm yeah. A, yeah I, you know, I, th I think the mistake we make um, when we assess direct actions, whether they're large or small, is is we immediately say, "Did we win?" Right. Right away. Yeah. Um, and I think um, uh, that's really looking at an isolated direct action and not really looking um, at the full picture. Um, um, some of the bigger mo movements in the last uh, decade, right, uh, the Occupy movement, Black Lives Matter. Um, one of the most important things that happened was that the narrative shifted. Right. Suddenly we had uh, language to use that we didn't have before. Suddenly we're talking about the one per Republicans are talking about the one percent. Right. Not not mm -hmm. in the ways we'd maybe like them to. But but but, but the language is out there. And I think w w with something like this, a march, uh, march to Springfield. Right. It's, it's, it seems small. Right. Um, but it's incredibly significant. It was reported on far and wide. Marchers had town hall listening events along the way. And, and, and they learned that uh, even people they might assume are different from them. 
uh, had similar pains, uh, had similar hopes. And uh, uh, when we talk about um, uh, systemic change, uh, as Rabbi Rosen said, I mean, I mean, changing one person doesn't change the system. If you change a light bulb uh, and the wires are bad, it's still going to burn out, you know. But, uh, but, uh, but, but, but as we, we keep pushing a new narrative and as, as we uh, keep putting pressure on officials, and I'll say uh, t t just quickly, uh, two of our uh, uh, reps were there, uh, uh, well, Teresa Ma, um, Katie Cassidy, uh, uh, Dan Biss was there um, at the end. And when, when the police made all of us leave, and it was just the people doing civil disobedience sitting outside the governor's office getting carried out by the police, those reps stayed there. Yeah. And, and they sang yeah. when the last person got carried out um, because none of us were left there to sing for them. And that gives me hope. I yeah. want to hear some music. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's what you're. Did you bring a guitar along with you? I did bring my guitar. Is it tuned up? It's tuned up, I believe. All right. uh, Good can enough you, for. Can you give us a little taste? Radio. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I want to keep you where I want you. Pocket size. Pull you out and give you orders. Oh, my devil tells me. Why? Oh, my devil tells me why. I was calling out your name, God, when I tried to cross the street. Everybody have it so much easier than me. I was looking at the sky, God. When I thought I saw your face, but every time I really need you, you never. In the the Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lump in Theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lump in Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lump in Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com.